Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. And welcome, Bill Camacho. Um, it's, it, I have to say it's a real pleasure for me to be doing this with you because how long have we known each other? I was trying to figure this out. I was thinking it goes at least back to the late to uh, mid-90s. Yeah. So uh, 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 20 years plus. And it's amazing how many things you do and how many things you do well. It's, um, it's really fantastic. Uh, so don't screw up here, all right? I do my best uh, because you've, you've been my role model. You've increased expectations, and, and I'm sure you're going to meet them. So a little bit about your history. Uh, where were you born? Poughkeepsie, New York, about 100 miles from this spot. And how was that growing up in Poughkeepsie? Uh, Poughkeepsie was uh, terrific. Uh, it was a thriving academic hub with Vassar and Marist. Uh, IBM was in its glory, and IBM had a huge presence in the Hudson Valley. So you saw one massive investment in uh, employment, in social facilities. My dad didn't work for IBM, but many of my childhood friends did, and IBM had the best employees country club and sports facility in the region. So I got to go as a guest. And just the, uh, the pleasure of the historical things that I enjoyed as a kid, uh, Hyde Park, uh, the Vanderbilt Mansion, the Frederick Church, Olana Mansion, and going to football games on the weekends at uh, West Point. So oh, it, was a, it was a wonderful place to go. Sounds fantastic. Um, so growing up, what did you want to do when you when you were a kid? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do when you grew up? My mother's father and her brother were lawyers. Uh, my mom grew up in the Texas Panhandle, and we would have a couple of trips a year to see them. And watching my grandfather and my uncle, I knew from the time of my early grade school years that I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay, now, so you had a Texas side of the family. Where's your father from? Northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, north of uh, north of Scranton, anthracite coal mining country. So that's an interesting combination. How'd your parents meet? Uh, my father got a job with Phillips Petroleum out of uh, the University of Pittsburgh, where he, where he studied engineering, and they sent him to Borger, Texas, and that's where he met Frances Crow, my mother. She was uh, studied biology, and they were working in the laboratory there. And uh, the day came when he walked up and said, hello, Francis. That the rest the is history. Do you have any brothers or sisters? I have a sister who's uh, seven years younger who lives in Florida. What does she do? She's, uh, she's a nurse, and at the moment she's, uh, she's happily retired with her husband. Okay. Yeah. Um, what about retirement? I'm at retirement age. You're not at retirement age yet. Um, do you view uh, retirement as something to look forward to or... Actually, there's no need to retire because I got everything I need right now. I feel in so many ways I'm just getting warmed up. Uh, if we were in sports, we'd be finished in our mid-40s. Uh, but I like to think that in the area of our shared interests, teaching, writing, convening events, that the older you get, certainly up to a point, the better you get at it. You have better intuition, better touch. So I... I'd love to keep doing things. The mix of things I enjoy doing has changed, but uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward for another, another good decade and uh, God willing too. Oh, good. So, you know you want to be a lawyer. Why did you choose competition law to get involved? I had a uh, wonderful uh, uh, push from, uh, from my uh, teachers at Columbia Law School where I studied from 74 to 78 with a year's leave of absence. Uh, you could take a single elective the first year in the curriculum in the second semester. And I took trade regulation, which was taught by Harlan Blake. And one day uh, he invited us to his advanced seminar to hear a guest lecturer talk about uh, the IBM case at the time. This is the mid-70s and uh, new legislative developments that might produce a, a pre-merger notification mechanism. And after class, uh, I stood around to ask him a question about that, and I was about ready to go home. Uh, I thought, ah, I, I could skip it. But his other questioners left. There was an opening, and I asked him, uh, uh, what about this legislation? He answered my question. I was about to go home, say thanks. He said, if you're really interested in this, I know the staff director of the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee that's working on the legislation. And if you don't have any plans for the summer, uh, 
do well on the exam, I'd be glad to give you a recommendation. And, and I did well on the exam. He gave me the recommendation. The subcommittee said, if you're here for a summer, you can't really help much. By the time you have to say goodbye, uh, that's when we really need you. That's when you'd be learning. If you're willing to do this for a year and take a leave of absence, you're on. School gave me a leave of absence, and that was the start. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. I worked for the antitrust subcommittee, which was chaired by Philip Hart from Michigan at the mm -hmm. time, and got to see the development of what became the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Improvements Act of 1976. So in competition law, uh, usually you have a leader. It's either the Senate or the House that uh, takes more interest in it. Was the Senate more interested in... And I trust Laura, the way equal or what was it? Uh, the Senate was playing, I would say, the leadership role because there are people like Hart who devoted his life's work to this field uh, uh, and, and others who uh, supported him. And th there was a, a large, strong bipartisan coalition in our legislature at the time, certainly in the Senate, uh, with a remarkable amount of goodwill across the aisle. That's been drained from the reservoir. Now, that's all gone. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But uh, but it was powerful then, uh, so that the two sponsors in the Senate, Hart, a Democrat from Michigan, Hugh Scott, a Republican from uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania yeah. saw eye to eye on this. Uh, and it was the Senate uh, that, that pushed it with, with help from people like Peter Rodino, whose name's on the bill in the House. Okay. Um, all right. So then you go back to law school. Finished law school in 78, uh, spent a year working for a federal judge in Baltimore, and then... Uh, who, was the the, who was the judge? Rosal Thompson, uh, U.S. District Judge, and he was a member of... Uh, he chaired the uh, Standing Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure for the uh, Federal Judicial Conference. That was a year? One year. And how'd you like it? Uh, it was a wonderful year. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, the, the courtroom experience... The judge had this uh, role on the Rules Committee and involved us deeply in that. And he was also part of a special three-judge panel designated to oversee the execution of the Railroad Reorganization Act of 1973. This was to salvage the remains of the Penn Central Network and, and, the, and the passenger rail system, uh, the mechanism that conveyed assets to Conrail. This was the proceeding to determine what the federal government would pay for the taking. And the three judges on the panel were Henry Friendly, of uh, the Second Circuit here in New York, uh, John Miter Wisdom, who is on the um, on the D.C. Circuit, and uh, and Russell Thompson. So we got to we got to watch all three of them at work, and this was a magnificent yeah, tour through I mean, history. Certainly, uh, the other two were exceptional judges as well. Extraordinary judges, and they generously spent a good deal of time in our presence, talking about how they got there and what they did, uh, and it was. Uh, it was a spectacular bit of oral history, uh, month after month, listening to them talk about it. It's interesting. We, have, we share some beginnings. I clerked in the Southern District and then the Second Circuit. But I, was in, I spent first year, first year, summer, second year uh, in the antitrust division working uh, and absorbing all that was going on. Who was the, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust? Uh, I, think, I think it was Kuiper. But it, Tom Kuiper, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, he, it could have been anyone. I would never yeah. see the uh, assistant attorney general in my position. Uh, but I, I had a great situation is I went through all the old Supreme Court cases, uh, antitrust cases, obviously, and then wrote them up and created a file for lawyers to look at. So it was an education. Plus, I spoke to the lawyers about this and what they would do and not do. So it was fantastic. And there's so much in the formative cases that is still fresh today. Uh, and I can't think of a better way to get started. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a shame that um, so many of us uh, have strayed from, from reading the, the formative documents in the field. Yeah, yeah I, I, uh, I totally agree with that. Uh, and that helps you not only what was there, but what's the possibility it doesn't go back and what were the reasons that did it. Um, as you know, antitrust and antitrust and IP have phases of which there was strong, weak, or this. Um, and it's interesting to figure out what caused those. Was it person, per, people? Was it the economy? Was it litigation that came before people? Uh, but it's, it's, it's fascinating to sort of look at these things. 
I think uh, part of what makes uh, the field so rich is that it's, in many ways, it's, it's history and political science um, in the guise of law. It's a, it's a tour through the history of the American economy, uh, what shaped it, and exactly the forces you mentioned. Uh, what's the role of the strong personality who shapes a program, a Thurman Arnold at the Department of Justice? What's the role of these external economic shocks that cause adjustments in policy, everything from the Depression up through the post-World War II boom. Um, in 2007, 2008 eight, recession. The, uh, the recession, which uh, still has powerful continuing effects on, on, on policymaking and the economy and the political mood. Uh, so I tell students uh, at the beginning of the course, uh, if you are a social scientist at heart, you're home. This is your place. Exactly. All right, so now... You've made a name for yourself already to some extent, and probably good references. You choose the FTC rather than the Antitrust Division. Why did you do that? The uh, FTC had established uh, about a year and a half earlier a policy office headed by Jack Kirkwood, who's now on the faculty of Seattle University in the law school. Um, Jack had been given freedom to assemble uh, his own team of people. Uh, he picked a number of us who become academics. Uh, Bob Land was one of my colleagues. Uh, Bob's at the University of Baltimore. Ross Petty uh, teaches at the business school at Babson. Um, a group of us brought in uh, really to work in a think tank and to do three things, to do some consulting on cases, to do research papers and publish them on important trends and developments, and to assist in the development of a program the commission was building to look back at the results of older cases and assess whether the commission's choices have been wise to inform future policy development. Uh, and I suppose I had an idea at the time. I wanted to be an academic. Uh, my first publications came out of the Why did you want to be an academic? I, uh, I, I, I so greatly admired some of my instructors uh, at Columbia. Uh, Harlan Blake, who was so generous to me, uh, maybe more than any other Harvey Goldschmidt, uh, uh, who taught corporations, taught antitrust law, uh, but I marveled at their skill at the podium in developing a class and drawing out ideas and encouraging a discussion. I can remember we're watching Harvey in the classroom and saying very clearly to myself once, I want to be like that someday. That's the job I want. Yeah, excellent. Um, so you not only went originally, you went back, you went back, you went back. Uh, you were... At separate times, how many different times were you employed at the FTC? I uh, came and went three times. Uh, four years from 79 to 83, then 2001 through 2004, and then 2006 to 2011. So three incarnations. All, all right. Together. And what was the best of those three? Uh, being general counsel from 2001 to 2004 and working for Tim Miras at the time. That was, uh, that was the best experience of the whole lot. And what... What does the general counsel of the FTC do? There are some assigned responsibilities for what might be called the administrative law element of administrative agencies, Freedom of Information Act, Sunshine Act, a whole host of procedural requirements governing what the agency does. But beyond that, and giving advice on cases, opinions. Right, that, who do you give that advice to? Uh, to the whole board. So the whole board, uh, the general counsel's office on each matter prepares a memo. You're sort of like the solicitor general of the FTC. Exactly right. And the key question put to you is, will we win or will we lose? And what are the odds? Uh, so that's a, a standard element of the job. But beyond that, uh, it's really the decision of the chair about how to engage you. And when I came in, Tim's view was, there are a couple of things I want you to do. I do not want to travel all the time outside of the United States. You will have a major role in being the voice of the agency in matters international. And the other that I want you to do is I want you to continue to do research and writing on topics related to FTC projects and publish papers or to write materials and speeches that I can use and others can use to do this as well. So I want you in many ways to rely on the senior, superb civil servants who do the ad law work. Uh, I don't expect you to ever go into a courtroom as an advocate, and I never did. There are great people Now, that, did you miss that? I didn't. I'd hmm. never done it in my life. Uh, I, I was about to say I'd never been in the courtroom and have been in the courtroom. I've watched litigation. I know the theory of litigation. 
but I've, I've never done it myself. And there were so many people at the agency who were superb at that. There have been general counsels at the FTC who were absolutely first-rate forensic advocates, and they did argue cases, appeals. Uh, I didn't, but I had great people who did that for me. So I was able in many ways to hand that off to them, let me know it's important, and keep doing that, give advice on proposed lawsuits, uh, but to work extensively on this policymaking and international function. And that's where the chair of the agency has a great deal of freedom basically to define the portfolio. And Tim did it in a way that um, really fit exactly with my interests. It's the reality of the FTC is the chairman does everything and you have four other people who basically sit in their offices for a number of years, or is it a group activity? Uh, the chair's the chief operating officer, and that's the result of an arcane but important 1950 statute called the Reorganization Act of 1950, which gave the president the ability to appoint the chairman and makes the chairman the, the, the chief operating officer. So Tim was responsible for overseeing the bureaus and, and for things as important but unusual. Uh, after the 9-11 attacks in 2001, uh, the General Services Administration said all older buildings like the FTCs would be refitted to take single-paned windows and make them double-proof and blast-proof. Uh, Tim had to oversee that process uh, to make sure that was done within the constraints of the budget. So you're responsible for making sure that the parking lot works, uh, but also to, to formulating a program. Uh, the role of the other members of the agency uh, varies a lot according to their abilities and their tastes. Uh, the chairman never forgets that the magic number of the commission is three. And if you don't have three votes, if you don't command a, a working majority, uh, you're gonna fail. And that means that a wise chairman, I think, spends lots of effort to engage them in the program. All right, so you always have three of one party and two of another party, is that correct? That's right, there's a, at least no more than three from any one party you could have, the two can be for other parties. They can even declare themselves to be independent okay. uh, if they claim to be. No more than three from one party. And how much is it expected if you're from the same party that you will be agreeing with the chair? Uh, it's certainly the chair's expectation. Yeah. But I think many chairs lose sight of the, the, the fact that uh, as soon as you get that piece of paper on the wall that says, a seven-year appointment, and you know that it means removal only for good cause, that you have exactly as many votes as the chair does, and that's one. And he needs two others to get his job done. So uh, <clears throat> I think chairs tend to push the White House to pick a working majority that will be sympathetic to their aims. But even there, with same party members and interactions, the chair has to be very careful not to take them for granted and to engage them in the, the formulation of policy, to meet with them every week. Uh, my rule of thumb in the year that I was chair was that you see each of them for an hour a week and you ask them, what do you think about what we're doing? Is there anything in the mix that you want to do? If you forget that, uh, you'll be blindsided by how quickly a coalition forms to oppose you. So you were chair for a, a period of time? 12 months. 12 months, okay. Um, what do you think of the FTC today? Do you have, maybe you don't want to give me a, a verdict on them, but how are they doing? I think they're doing a good job in an extremely difficult circumstance. Uh, uh, they are, their chair is enormously capable. Joe Simons, he was my colleague when I was general counsel. He, uh, when I was general counsel, Joe headed the Bureau of Competition and ran uh, an enormously significant program with great litigation successes in antitrust cases like Polygram, like uh, Chicago Bridge and Iron, ambitious but unsuccessful cases like Rambus, uh, several merger challenges involving high-tech mergers with important patent licensing remedies. Uh, Joe, had a, a, Joe was there basically 30 months and had an extremely ambitious program. I think he's a terrific chair of the agency. Uh, He's running a set of very ambitious hearings now to sort of chart the future. He's got a number of interesting plans. Uh, uh, he'll face the challenging decision about exactly how to deliver on the promise that is inherent in the many moves that he's made. So a good chair, uh, 
the other membership of the board, uh, you've, got, you've got people with strong backgrounds from a variety of different perspectives. Uh, so I, I'd say it's a, it's a talented group, uh, but having a talented group of players does not determine that you will have a successful team. And they've had about a year working together now. I'd say the real test for them is what happens in the next 12 months. Uh, okay. What do you think about this pay-for-delay de litigation? Is, it, is the right thing uh, maybe right, maybe wrong? Or uh, what do you feel about it? I, 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 think, uh, I think the commission was right to pursue these cases, to develop a program roughly 20 years ago to pursue them. Uh, I think it achieved uh, important results in cases like activists, which at least uh, established that a rule of reason would govern the evaluation of the behavior. There's a lot to be done to define what that, uh, what that test looks like. But from an antitrust perspective, and I know there's a, there's a great debate in our, in our combined fields here over this, I think there are inherent dangers in a circumstance in which an incumbent goes to a potential entrant and says, uh, I will pay you to delay entry. The reasonable question is, what is the basis for that agreement? Is there something good for consumers uh, that comes from that? And that's an open issue in, in, the, in the litigation that's taking place now. But I think uh, the commissioner is right to, to focus attention on it and bring cases to challenge. Uh, so even if you agree that, that sometimes this is problematical, it seems like the FTC is saying it's always problematical. There's never a good reason for it. They've really been backed off of that position, though, right. by the courts. Uh, they, uh, uh, the, the early litigation was position was, was categorically forbidden. The retreat became a presumption, a strong presumption of illegality. And the Supreme Court and activists was, was, was confronted with the question, Presumed illegal or simply subject to a rule of reason analysis where the agency has the burden of proof of showing um, that the behavior on balance is harmful. The Supreme Court did not accept the commission's argument that there was a presumption of illegality. It laid out a few benchmarks that suggested what the commission might do to shift the burden of production onto the defendant's shoulders to come forward with justifications. But the Supreme Court very carefully stayed away from adopting the FTC's position. So I think the commission realizes uh, that without legislation that would change things, and maybe this Congress will come back on these and other pharmaceutical sector issues, uh, the commission realizes that it did not get the conclusive or strong presumption that it was asking for, and it's got to build a more elaborate case as a result. All right, so the... Third Circuit agreed with the other circuits have taken a different position. So in future cases, would the FTC say that we're always going to bring it in the Third Circuit if we can? Or what is the strategy on that? I think the commission's litigation program became increasingly attuned to bringing cases where the jurisprudence in the circuit was favorable, uh, which is why we're not seeing cases brought through the administrative process anymore on this topic. You might think that given the agency's conceptual advantages in applying its knowledge and skill to resolving issues, ultimately through the decisions of the board itself, that that would be the place where you'd want to see a post-activist elaboration of standards. The commission knows, though, that it's the defendant that gets to pick the forum for the appeal in any circuit which it does business. So the commission, if it goes through the administrative process, is going to have to calibrate its opinion to meet the objections of the circuit with the most skeptical view of what the commission's doing. That's why I think you're seeing the foreign shopping. All right. So if you were a potential defendant, and obviously they know the FTC is looking at them in a way that they might bring something, wouldn't it be a good idea to have a declaratory judgment in another circuit that is more hospitable? I think defendants have, in fact, tested that approach. I would, I would work very hard if I were a defendant to move to a jurisdiction that was more sympathetic to my arguments. Okay. I would seek to move, change the venue. I would use all the procedural tools and arguments I had at my disposal to seek to push things to another forum, which some defendants have had success in doing mm -hmm. uh, because courts have said, why are you here? Where are you way out here where 
the core of the activity seems to be across the country in another place. Yeah, that's always the problem with that yeah. situation. All right. Department of Justice, FTC. We know the FTC was created because Congress thought, my God, it's not working. We got the Knight decision. We have other things. It doesn't look like the Sherman Act will do what we wanted it to do, so we create the FTC. If today we're starting from scratch, um, right this period, would you think we need both the antitrust division and the FTC uh, a little bit, a lot, or it really has shown it's good to have both agencies? I'd have a single institution and a, and a major basis for that is watching what other jurisdictions have done. I, I serve on the board as an outside director of the United Kingdom's Competition and Markets Authority. The United Kingdom is one of at least five jurisdictions in the last decade that have taken a multi-agency framework and consolidated them essentially into one institution. I don't see a good basis for having multiplicity at the federal level the way they do now. I think two's a crowd. So if I wanted redundancy in my system, which is a good idea, we've got private rights of action, which are pretty powerful. We have state governments that are seen as having standing to enforce the federal statute as well as their own state laws. Uh, I don't see a good case to be made today for having two instead of one. So how would you change it? Would you take the FTC and get rid of the antitrust division or the antitrust division or what? I would keep the FTC if I could make some fundamental adjustments to the administrative constraints that, that affect the way it works. But even if I kept it, the criminal mandate is always going to be in the Department of Justice. Mm. So there's always going to be a handoff there. The criminal division, if it were the successor in interest, would always continue to do that work. So uh, if you want an administrative agency that's got the research and analysis function, the ability to gather records through compulsory process without anticipating litigation, uh, with an administrative decision-making process, including adjudication. If you want to keep that, you have to acknowledge that you will always have two in the game. That it won't, it will never be one if you want that second option. But I couldn't imagine keeping the FTC for the future if we kept the government and the Sunshine Act in place, which prohibits the agency in most instances from having discussions among a quorum of commissioners. Which is crazy. Uh, which is crazy. Um, no other country in the world does this. If, we, if we're concerned about good disclosure, let's have meaningful disclosure. Let's, uh, let's insist that agencies publish more forthcoming strategic plans, uh, informative annual reports, assessments of past matters. But the Sunshine Act uh, imposes severe limits on the ability of the agency to formulate a strategy and execute it effectively. So I put it this way, if we will not change the Sunshine Act in fundamental ways, I would not keep the administrative option. I would close it down. Okay. What about private actions? I mean, at one point, private actions seem to play a much bigger role uh, than they do today. Uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but it, it seems that way. Um, I, I think there are a number of them are, uh, are filed, but in terms of making a difference in the law, uh, are private actions a, a big player now? Uh, they're still a big player. Uh... The, the number of private actions fell dramatically after the late 1970s when the Supreme Court essentially made it much harder to bring vertical restraints cases, uh, resale price maintenance, terminated relationships than it had before. Uh, but they still remain uh, uh, the decisive force in shaping doctrine concerning single firm behavior, what the Europeans would call abusive dominance, what we call monopolization. Uh, there's still the force that causes defendants in price-fixing cases to stay awake at night because they are the mechanism we rely on more than any other to provide recovery to victims. So the private right of action uh, is still a, a, a crucial part of the U.S. regime. A difficulty is that the Supreme Court, beginning in the 1970s, began to distrust private litigants, especially in cases like monopolization cases where the remedy is mandatory troubling of damages the availability of class actions, uh, the concern that, that 
imprecisely designed complaints or excessively broad complaints would result in a finding liability with massive damage liability. The court started to react to that by putting screens in the place of private litigants and changing substantive doctrine in a way that made it harder to recover. That's had the unfortunate effect of raising the bar that the public agencies face, even though they're not carrying the same baggage that the private litigant is. So the court's efforts to suppress the operation of the private rights system in some areas, in effect, suppresses the federal government's position as well, even where the federal government is just looking for equitable relief. So if now... My view is that the judges are much more scattered and individual, and uh, I'm not sure they have a a general view of private actions. My view is that probably they see, in where they're limiting, some failing person in the marketplace trying to gain leverage through litigation, rightly or wrongly, they're seeing that, and they're trying to protect that. And and there's a group, as you know, who think single players can actually do sometimes more for innovation uh, and consumer benefit than multiple players. Um, so I I would question whether actually then the government comes in as the good guy and they won't find ways to allow it to do it unless they're also suspicious of the government. Uh, I, I would say there is a general, a broader doubt. You know, it's it's most intense with with the private litigant where the Supreme Court has come in many instances, especially in monopolization cases, to express doubts about whether private rights are the appropriate mechanism for enforcement. Uh, It's most intense with the private litigant, but I would say there is a broader concern that the government has to face in which courts essentially wondered, um, before you intervene in a significant way, convince us that you've done a good diagnosis and your cure is gonna make things better. That burden has unmistakably become more powerful over the past 40 years. Is that a good burden or a bad burden? Uh, It's a matter of the dosage. Uh, My own view is that the dosage is too strong. Uh, If you have a headache, two aspirin will take care of it. If you swallow the whole bottle, you're probably going to die. I'd say the dosage of concern where the federal government is a litigant seeking equitable relief has been excessive. Now... In terms of judges, do you see in terms of just this issue that there's any connection with conservative, progressive, middle of the road, or you think it's more all the judges sort of agreeing on this? Uh, I don't think that the change we've seen in the last 40 years that produced far more permissive standards dealing with single firm behavior, the monopolist, uh, let's say the the high-tech monopolist that's got a rich portfolio of intellectual property rights and is using them aggressively. I don't think we would have seen the retrenchment of the US system had it not been for a fairly broad coalition of judges pursuing this. Um, Leading figures such as Richard Posner, Robert Bork, Frank Easterbrook claim a lot of attention, but I'd argue that uh, certainly in the courts of appeals and in the Supreme Court, a jurist like Stephen Breyer has been every bit as important in, uh, in, in shrinking the zone of liability. If we, if we use a, a baseball analogy, a prisoner that I am about sports, the courts over time have shrunk the strike zone that the government has to hit. The strike zone has narrowed. And the umpires who have pressed in that direction have not just been the conservatives. Uh, and Stephen Breyer, I would say, has had as much to do with setting standards where they are now as any other. And he's a Jimmy Carter appointee from 1980, Democrat, um, usually seen as middle left. Um, uh, but, but he's had a key role in doing it because he is in many ways an exponent of a view that two leading Harvard figures, Philip Arita and Donald Turner, who in my academic youth were the leading figures in our field. Philip Arita was probably the most famous lecturer uh, through the through the eighties and nineties, it's we- interesting about a reader. It was Reader and Turner were the two, and they had this treatise. And actually, most people I think thought a reader was better than Turner. Am I right on that? And I think you're right on that. And I think uh, you know Turner may have had some stronger um, 
some stronger analytical tools to, to draw on. Uh, Turner was both an economist, he had a PhD in economics and a lawyer. Arita was a lawyer who'd learned a lot of economics. In a sense, Turner had the larger kit of analytical tools, but Arita is the one who led that partnership. And Arita's foremost idea was that competition law should be suspicious of private rights of action, where you have cases like monopolization cases that involve close calls, where if you turn the switch on the liability, you're going to have automatic troubling. He also believed that rules had to be simple enough so that judges in the ordinary case, especially in charging juries, could give meaningful advice that business people could plan around. Uh, and his concern about what he called administrability, his concern about private rights of action, uh, imbue the views of, of, of Stephen Breyer. And Breyer again and again points to them as the foundation for his own intellectual view of the world in the field. So uh, it's a long way of saying that uh, on, your, on, your, on, your, on your point, you know, where does this come from? Is it, is it, is it conservatives? Is the far right driving this agenda? Partly. But they couldn't possibly have done it without uh, a number of people we consider to be centrists or a bit center left. Yeah. Now, Turner was an assistant attorney general for a while, right? In the mid 1960s. The interesting uh, thing about that is he almost did nothing that was innovative. I was expecting him to, you know, change the world. McLaren, who's a Republican, did much more merger law and other things. Uh, I'd, I'd mention one thing that Turner did that was innovative and still extraordinary. He drove the issuance of the first set of Department of Justice merger guidelines, 1968. And what was striking about them is that he deliberately retreated from the very aggressive frontiers that the courts had established for the department and the Federal Trade Commission in showing illegality. Uh, the Supreme Court, by the time he issued the guidelines, had said that a horizontal merger that created a post-acquisition market share of 4.49%. percent about Vons Grocery? Uh, this or is Pabst, but Vons was 7.6%. Yeah, yeah. Turner what? said, that's a mistake. And then similarly, harsh standards for vertical mergers. We've got to do something that's a bit more nuanced here. Now, he didn't walk dramatically away from that by a couple of points, a couple of percentage points. But it was a gesture of self-restraint. And it was an enforcement agency uh, where a number of conservative critics had said, your only aim is to expand the territory that you police and increase your power. This was Turner saying, we have the power, but we shouldn't have it. Yeah. So I'd say the one innovative thing he did with a long life for us today was that uh, self-limiting principle in the merger guidelines in 68. That's great. Well, I remember Vaughn's grocery and uh, district court said merger was okay. Justice Black, who is the most populist along with Douglas on the court. No doubt. Found it, but the two dissenters were Harlan and Stewart. So who are, my, my favorite type of justice is on the court. I think both of them are very good. Um, but I'm glad it, we moved we moved beyond that. Uh, all right, so if the issues today, what do you think are the most important issues facing antitrust competition law, either globally, here, or whatever? One of the most important uh, that, that literally covers the globe, and it's a matter of intense debate at home here, is the appropriate approach to dealing with single firm conduct. Are our monopolization standards set in the right place? And there's a remarkable new body of criticism uh, that's developed from a group that calls themselves Neo-Brandeisians, uh, often associated with Barry Lynn and his open markets group in Washington, D.C., Lena Kahn being one of the major exponents that have said the older cases that imposed much stricter standards on what dominant firms can do classic cases like Alcoa, United Shoe Machinery, others, those cases got it right. And the last 40 years of criticism that tends to dismiss those as being overreaching were right on target because they had an appropriate concern about overreaching by dominant firms. And more fundamentally, they had the right idea about what antitrust law was all about, that 
this conception of antitrust law dealing only with uh, uh, effects on prices or output and the adverse effect on consumers is a cramped view of what competition law should be. And those classic cases, uh, some of which you're referring to before, you, you know, when you when you read them in your time in the interest division, that talked about the position of small enterprises, um, uh, worthy men uh, who were the young, who were who were, who were small entrepreneurs, uh, uh, the adverse effect on the democratic process itself uh, should be revived. That those decisions got it right, and we shouldn't regard that as being sort of a foolish kind of. Of, uh, of, of, of woolly-haired populism, those are right on target and we ought to go back there. Major debate today about whether we have the goals right and what the standards ought to be, uh, so much so that for the first time in my lifetime in the nascent political campaign for the 2020 elections, a number of leading figures in those campaigns are staking out positions already saying, I will use my administration to attack these firms directly. I'll unwind old mergers that they shouldn't have been allowed to do. I will impose greater restraints. I'll get new legislation to force major platform companies like Google or Amazon to either operate as a platform or sell services, but not do both on the same platform. Um, so leading issue today is uh, what's the right standard for dealing with dominance? It's interesting, Brandeis. I, happen, I don't remember any Brandeis opinion, which I agreed with. So I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum on that. And uh, uh, when he came on the court, he was controversial. And he convinced Holmes to go with him a couple times. And the rest of the justices thought this was, the whole thing was kind of crazy. But uh, I think now, um, especially with gig economy, I'm not even sure the future is going to, and then if you take AI and throw it in, I'm not sure that this is actually a debate that's almost become archaic because I just read something where the gig economy is like 40% to 45 and, and uh, everything's small, everything's this, there's nothing big. And if then you throw in uh, AI, I don't know that we're gonna actually face uh, the same type of issues, but I do think we have been very soft on big tech companies. And I, it, to me, that's sort of its own little world, and something has to be done by that. But broader than that, I'm not. I'm not so sure. Yeah, I, I think the uh, the the argument that is uh, involves a little bit of speculation, uh, but is delivered with enormous emphasis by the adherents of a to a, a much bolder program of competition law in legislation and in litigation, uh, is that the reason that those developments have a chance to be transformative uh, is only through effective competition or oversight. Um, and they extrapolate from earlier examples. They say that, you know, what did the government's lawsuit against Microsoft do in the 90s? One of the main arguments was it gave breathing room to a nascent collection of firms that are now the focus of so much attention. They would argue that Google, Amazon, for example, could not have grown and expanded the way they did had it not been for the Microsoft case, even if the relief that the government itself got was not, not so good. So their argument would be that without this constant pressure of oversight and scrutiny, uh, the kinds of transformative developments we are witnessing, and we can, we'll not continue to see them in a powerful way. Uh, and that is a tenet of belief. Uh, and the new president in 2020, and maybe even the incumbent president, which is not in love, with a lot of these companies, uh, may see it the same way. Uh, don't even say the incumbent president. Didn't say his name, but I have predicted from the beginning that he's not going to serve out his term. I still think it, even though he's now got this new, supposedly being cleared and all, which I think it will show it isn't. But uh, my guess is he won't even be, in, and I'm the only one who thinks it now, I think, but you won't be president uh, at the next time we have an election, but we'll see. Intriguing question is whether with his obvious antipathy for some of the tech giants today, is that going to be an opening for the agencies if they choose to do it, to do something that's relatively bold in that domain? Mm -hmm. um, where maybe in the Obama administration, the tech community could count on more political support. 
maybe uh, more backing, maybe a little bit more inhibition about going after them because they had so many friends in the political process. Uh, it seems like those friends have, have, have run away at the moment. So oddly, uh, maybe it's in this administration, maybe in the next couple of years, that you see the FTC and the DOJ take a real swing at them. And a real test of that is this pending Facebook privacy matter that the FTC has. Yeah, now, um, one is, I, I, I happen to think what this administration did with the antitrust division head and with the PTO head was very good. I thought those were very good appointments. I'm not saying that the whole thing is, is bad, uh, but I'm saying this president no. is bad. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, there's, there's interesting, and the interesting thing about Obama, he started out as not particularly tech. His last four years when he brought in a staff of people from the tech industry, he, his administration became much more pro-tech, I thought. Uh, Unmistakably. Yeah. Uh, and you know, so much so in, in the competition area that you take, you take the expectations he created coming to the White House in 2008 into 2009. He had a manifesto during the campaign that said, uh, on merger policy, on monopolization policy, uh, I'm going to be much tougher. His first assistant attorney general for antitrust, uh, Christine Marney, in May of 2009, uh, tosses away a Department of Justice report that was very permissive in its attitude and said, that's rubbish, almost literally dropping it into the, into the trash can, um, and said, we're going to be much more bold here. The actual output by the department was exceedingly modest, and the FTC from 2011 to 2013, ran a major investigation of Google and gave one signal after another that we're coming at you. Uh, hired Ed Felton to be the chief technologist from Princeton. Hired Tim Wu, Mr. Net Neutrality, to help devise the theory that was going to go after them. Howard Shalansky is the chief economist. Beth Wilkinson is brought in from Lathan and Watkins to litigate the case. And then the FTC holds a press conference and says, never mind, go home. Uh, the fact that after that great run-up, nothing happened, I think, raised a lot of questions about whether the U.S. enforcement agencies are going to take this challenge on. So I agree with you completely. Enormous expectations created at the beginning of the administration continue to be created by the FTC's Google inquiry. But when you look at what actually took place for antitrust regarding single-firm conduct, for example, it's barely more than what their predecessors from the Bush administration. I mean, in, in the olden days, we were bolder than the EU in competition. By a long shot. Now, the EU is actually bolder than we are. Like, uh, I guess it was Google. Yes. What they did with Google was compared to what we did with Google, yeah. The, the European Commission is now the world headquarters for antitrust standards dealing with dominant firm behavior. Uh, and they have basically been setting those standards for roughly the last decade or so. Uh, the U.S. has disengaged. The FTC is running a couple of cases now. The Department of Justice has none. The FTC had its chance with Google and, and walked away. Uh, the European Commission's had three Google cases. And yeah. it seems to be queuing up another one involving Amazon, an investigation. Uh, around the world, when different countries... Think, where, where's the leadership for antitrust standards involving single firm behavior? Nobody says the United States. Yeah. And 20 years ago, when I first come, started coming to the, to the Fordham conferences on IP, um, when we met each other uh, over two decades ago, uh, you'd never say that. Uh, the U.S. was absolutely preeminent. Now it has no effective voice internationally on this issue. All right. You mentioned Amazon. Now, Amazon, I don't know. Amazon is like crazy stuff. They're selling everything. You get it the next day, everything else. The consumer, uh, is, is selfish. They're not really looking out after the world or anything, but for them. So, um, I forget the union, Lady uh, Garment 
workers' union who made all the clothes for little kids and for women. Yes. Uh, and all of a sudden, this stuff starts coming in from Asia, which is uncutting a price. And the big thing of look for the union label, look for, and all the people buying this were women. They didn't look for the union label. They looked for the, the better price and everything else. And so with Amazon, they're driving a lot of people out of business, but a lot of consumers are very happy. So what do we do with that situation? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the interesting feature about the modern debate is that the new challenge from the neo-Brandeisians is to focus on the low price to consumers is, is, a, is, a, is a disastrous approach to competition law. We should be thinking about the workers who make these products. The workers, especially in local communities with smaller firms that do this work. Um, we should think about the effect on smaller American business and to extend the argument, the possibility that Amazon uses its position as the platform manager to absorb information about what its competitors are doing and then come back at them and compete against their products. Uh, so so the, the, the debate that lies ahead of us for the next two years and maybe beyond uh, is whether antitrust law should move away from its traditional concern with that consumer who says, yeah, add another thing to the cart because it's cheap, it's attractive, and it's better than what I can get. But it should walk away from that. In effect, say that you may think at the moment that's good for you. But for our largest society, for our very democracy, that's a narcotic. Are we in a situation where maybe antitrust cannot be wrapped around in a way we need a sui generis law or something for this situation that can maybe better deal with what we consider abuses. Uh, do you think the antitrust law itself can be shaped in a way? It's, a, it's, it's extremely flexible. The entire design as Congress established it over 130 years ago, almost, almost 130 years ago, and in the case of the FTC a century ago, uh, it's deliberately scalable. It is malleable. Uh, so it's got a lot of capacity to adjust as it has over the whole span of that history. But I think in many ways, the, the key question now, and this is where a number of us uh, 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 diverge from the, the proposals that a number of the neo-Brandeisians make, is that, is that do you want antitrust to accomplish all these social policy goals? Is that its best use? Is its best use, on the one hand, to spur productivity improvements, push prices down, spur integration, do the sorts of things that uh, involve quality enhancements, price reduction, dynamic efficiency, or do you want it to carry a collection of other social policy obligations? Or on that front, is the best thing you can do, for example, to make massive investments in education, uh, massive investments in human capital that increase flexibility, uh, carefully scrutinize artificial restrictions on entry that keep people out of the market, improve access to capital markets. Um, in, in short, do you want to rely on antitrust to carry this set of obligations? Or do you want to look more broadly at the phenomena that are changing the face of American commerce and adopt other policies to address it directly? I mean, my from my time at a, at a competition agency and an FTC that also had a consumer mission and a privacy mission, uh, getting the, the basic microeconomics about quality, price, innovation right is, is a hard job. And to add the dimension of, you're gonna be help, help us do some social engineering that preserves small enterprises as then in itself. You're gonna make positive contributions to the maintenance of a, of a democratic society. Uh, that's a daunting responsibility. It's hard enough to do the other stuff. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. All right, so antitrust competition law uh, is growing around the world. So now we have, I don't know, something like... Over, over 130 jurisdictions yeah, have competition have laws. Yeah. And uh, you have a great article on this. And uh, But is that actually more of a problem if they don't know how to do it and are screwing it up? A great burden on all of us who have had some role in providing guidance for doing this and can be said to have encouraged it in some ways. 
is to ensure that it's done well. Uh, do you do you want do you want to give people different tools, powerful tools, without having some confidence that they'll be used well? I mean, a number of people have used the analogy of an automobile. Um, um, don't you want to start with a more modest automobile? The first car I drove as a kid was a Volkswagen Beetle. Ah, same here. Uh, uh, red Volkswagen Beetle, four speeds forward, one in reverse. I think it would go 100 miles an hour if you dropped it out of an airplane, but not otherwise. Uh, uh, not, a, not a high-powered car, but it was just right for me. Uh, giving me a, a Ferrari would have been a big mistake uh, at that age. Uh, I think the, the real challenge is, can you bring capability, sophistication along fast enough to ensure that as responsibilities are added, they're done well. The success stories internationally for new systems since the Berlin Wall came down 40 years ago, no, 30 years ago, 30 years ago, and, and who, who could have imagined that? Uh, someone our age, I suspect, still marvels that that happened at all. And the subsequent shocks that it brought about in the former Soviet Union, the, what was called the Warsaw Pact. Um, the success stories since then have gone through a fairly impressive progression from weaker, lower-powered systems accumulating capability and gradually improving over time so that as you get more capability and more capacity and experience, then you get upgrades. And you look at your system every five years or so and you get upgrades. Uh, those have been the good systems. Uh, there are a lot of systems that are absolutely stillborn, impressive laws, no capacity to enforce. And then there's another group that have a significant amount of power, but uh, the challenge of building the capacity that ensures that it'll be used well, uh, I don't think it's been met very effectively. Yeah, one concern would be, and I think China does this to some extent, is you use the antitrust laws basically to protect your own against foreign competitors. Uh, do you see that as a possible going wrong in the future with all these agencies? Or, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more sanguine on China. I think uh, I think a lot of what they do, you know, taking the entire scope of what they do uh, fits in a pretty good mainstream of what we see. Although there are features in the law that say, we want to use this law as a way of giving us better access to IP. And, and, and using caps on what's called excessive pricing, licensing fees as a way of doing that. So. There's some unabashedly protectionist features built into the Chinese law. I think in many ways, the, the Chinese enforcement officials are doing the best they can to use uh, commonly accepted global standards. Uh, but a concern that arises is that there are so many painful examples in well-established Western economies where you either see behavior by interest institutions that's consistent with a protectionist element or you see leading public officials saying, we should do more of that. Mm. And the Chinese watch this and say, that's just right. That's what we want. Uh, well, we're just I, like you. I actually think the Chinese infrastructure is fantastic, both in copyright, probably in competition. No. What I'm more concerned about is the overlay of whether it's the Communist Party or the military or something else. And I, I give you this one example of uh, the uh, EU case against... Uh, Google. Um, all right. A person in a Chinese competition thing who I'm told was is the head of it spoke to a person that's very high up in the EU competition and said, uh, uh, well, what is the U.S. going to do to you? And this person, what do you mean, what's the U.S. going to do? Well, you went after one of its companies what are they going to do to you? He said, no, we're totally independent of this and this and this and this and this. And this person said, well, over here, if you did that to one of our companies, I would be told to do it to two of your companies, too, to give, give you a lesson that don't do it again. Now, that is the type of thing I'm afraid of. I don't think, I think the infrastructure is actually quite good. And the laws may even be good, but I'm just worried about that sort of stuff happening in 130 or 30 things where they're really using it for bad reasons. Well, and I, I think a larger concern I have is that when you see leading public officials, including heads of state in a number of different environments, including our own, 
saying, I want this law used this way to serve a specific interest I have. Uh, I don't like Jeff Bezos because he owns the Washington Post yeah, and I hate the Washington Post. That puts a that puts the the public officials who run the agencies in a horrible position. Absolutely. And I'm afraid that we're seeing more and more in a number of countries that kind of talk. The way that the Commissioner for Competition and, and the European Commission, uh, Commissioner Vestar, was hammered by the Germans and the French for blocking uh, the Alston-Siemens uh, merger, uh, being told, essentially, you'll never eat lunch in this town again if you do this. Uh, your prospects of advancement in the commission are, are over. You're destroying the economy by doing this, placing enormous pressure on her. And, and perhaps from a competition policy person's point of view, her finest hour, she said, I'm going to do my job. I have a job to do, and I'm going to do it the way I think And good does. for her. I, and I, good I, for her. Good for her. But I think it's a, I think it's a, uh, I think in a growing number of jurisdictions with older systems and newer systems, there are a striking number of instances where powerful elected leadership takes positions that encourages the use of the law in this kind of aggressive way. And that resonates so powerfully in newer jurisdictions that want that have instincts to do this. Well, anyway. Certainly the current situation in our country yes. is, is, is an abomination. Uh, and if that continues, actually, it, it's, you know, a tremendous threat to many things, including democracy. And, but I'm hoping that it won't continue. And uh, uh, so I, I would hope this is just a little period of time of which some bad things have happened, but it's not an indication of the future. Uh, uh, I do worry, I especially worry about the quality of the international institutions and infrastructure that's been built over time to promote uh, gradual, gradual convergence on superior techniques. That took so long to build. And in many ways, that's been, it's being hammered right now. And we're swinging the, we're swinging the hammer. That's very And awesome. you keep doing it. You keep doing it. Uh, you can do a lot of harm in four years. All right, so my final question, I see the clock on the wall. Uh, we try to do these things in an hour. Um, five years from now, what do you see the picture? Or is it impossible? We're in sort of this murky period of we don't know which way it's going to go. Uh, globally, the U.S., whatever, in terms of competition. Well, I feel uh, frightfully badly on, on two predictions in 2016, one about the elections in the U.S. and one about the Brexit vote in the U.K., so I'm... I'm disqualified for making accurate predictions about the larger environment. But I, I think in that five-year period, uh, we're going to see uh, we're going to see more and more fundamental tests to the effectiveness of the regulatory regimes that have developed uh, for IP, for competition law, for trade. Uh, they're going to they're going to face increasing pressure uh, from political demands that 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 their that their role fundamentally be changed. Um, and I'm not sure what the result of that process will be, uh, but I know I, I, I have a lot of confidence that that's going to be an intense debate and uh, agencies are going to have to work very hard to make the case that the core of their programs over time deliver good results for society. And, and, and to think more of themselves than simply being good technocrats. Mm -hmm to being deeply a part of a larger political environment in which they have to work hard and cannot take for granted the importance of explaining the benefit of what they've tried to do for the last 40 years. Okay. All right. I, I actually have one more question. Apparently, you're an advisor on antitrust and consumer protection to Armenia, Benin, Egypt, El Salvador, Georgia, Guana, Indonesia, Pakistan, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Mongolia, um, Morocco, Nepal, Panama, Russia, Ukraine, Vietnam, and Zimbabwe. What on earth are you doing with all those countries? I'm uh, sure you're giving a good advice, but how do you give advice to that many countries? Uh, all at different times, not all at the same time, but uh, I'd say the main advice I try to give increasingly is 
to be aware of the necessary institutional foundations to doing any of this kind of work and to build those as a top priority first. That if you do not build the institutions, the legal mechanism will fail and fail badly. It will be perverse. So my advice again and again is institutions first. All right. How did you end up? Did you get some of these as a group or you actually interacted each individually? My first one was Mongolia. And I got a phone call out of the blue in late in uh, 1991 from a consulting firm that does a lot of work for the U.S. Agency for National Development. The caller said, you don't know me. But uh, I'm the next door neighbor of a former student of yours. And we were at a neighborhood event recently. And I asked her, you wouldn't know any academic, would you, who specializes in antitrust, who might be interested in assisting um, Zimbabwe. It was Zimbabwe. Assisting Zimbabwe in developing a competition law. And she said, in fact, I do. Here he is. And that's why I'm calling you. And the rest is history. You do one uh, in this larger world, and suddenly you're an expert. You do two, and you're an exalted expert. So Zimbabwe led to Mongolia, led to Ukraine, on and on and on. The more you accumulate, the more you're thought to know. A completely unintended career path that was the result of a happenstance encounter between a former student and a consultant. But you're making a difference. Uh, the deep uh, question that nags at me over time, is it a positive difference? That is, is the, uh, um, is the concern about the institutional arrangements sinking in? But I could say the same thing about the United States, and mm -hmm. it goes back to our questions about whether we're too content with what, what we have. Uh, but I, I, I see enough instances in which it's gone well by my measure that it gives me hope that it can be done well. But uh, I think there is a, uh, we still have a terrible mismatch between the commitments that we're seeking to undertake and the capability to deliver. But I'd say that about the <coughs> United States too. That's great. Well, thank you so much. Bill. Thank you, Hugh. This Thanks has for the chance great, to do this. This has been a great time and I'm very appreciative. Well, and let me thank you too for the, uh, so I told you many times, the, the role that you've played in providing a forum for discussion and debate. Uh, I can't imagine, I can, I can say with certainty one thing I tell people that you will not build an effective program unless you have a strong academic infrastructure, an intellectual foundation that promotes the research, the debate, that teaches young people. And when I talk about IP, I talk about the program that is preeminent, and that's yours, and you built that. So okay. thank you. Thank you very much.